but he never created us autonomous, self-sufficient, independent. There is that human drive, and sin's even made it worse, to be that. I would like to not need anyone else, even God. I'd like to be fully sufficient and independent and autonomous and make all my own decisions. There is that within us, but that was not God's intent, even from the very beginning. Because He created us in His image to be in relationship with Him and to need Him and to enjoy Him. We were made to be dependent on God's counsel. We were not created to be autonomous. Dependent on God's counsel. You think about it in, in, in the scriptures. I'll just show you a few of them. Matthew 4.4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. See, it's not just physical food that we need. It is God's word and God's counsel and wisdom that we need to sustain us. We have to have it. We were designed to need this. Deuteronomy 32 says, Set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe. All the words of this law, for it is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life. We find life here. We've got to have it. We're in desperate need of this. And by this word you shall prolong your days. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, you think about it, we've got an entire Bible of 66 books and the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, 175 verses, is all about what? God's word. Thank you. One person knew. God's word. And he says it about 150 different ways, how he desperately needs God's word, loves God's word, longs for God's word, delights in God's word, finds freedom in God's word, on and on and on and on and on and on. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. See, without God's word, life is absurd. As the world today has decided, no purpose, no future, See, God's word gives us a sense of our place in the universe. Apart from this, people struggle to understand, why am I even here? And it is one of the things that distinguishes us as much as the world harps on, there's no difference. Animals, plants, people, no difference, no difference, no difference, no difference. There is a huge difference. Animals don't get together, right? Dogs don't get together and lie on the front porch and say, really, why do we do what we do? Why do we chase cars? Freddie got killed last week. We keep losing people, but we keep doing this. What is going on? Right? They don't put on black turtlenecks and smoke pipes and think hard, deep thoughts. To, you know, they just chase cars, poop, breed, sleep, eat, chase cars, poop, breed, sleep, and are happy to do so. We are the ones created in God's image. And because of that, as image bearers, there is this longing for things to make sense. We try to connect dots. We're interpreters. We are interpreters. What is going on? How does this all fit together? That's why we are the ones that have philosophy departments. And we are the ones that just book after book after book after book is written. And, and whatever you think about uh, Rick Warren, there's still much good there. You don't have to agree with everything. But here's a Christian that writes The Purpose Driven Life. And it becomes a gazillion bestseller even among unbelievers. That tells you something. Now, I do think right here is the purpose-driven life. This is not just a a dusty, old, historical, fuddy-duddy book. You want to know your purpose for life? Right here. we got to have God's Word. 
or we're going to struggle. struggle. Ravi Zacharias is one of my favorite apologists because he's, he's warm, he's gentle, he's gracious, he's unflappable. He does not, he doesn't get provoked. And I've, lo- I've listened to so many of his debates on secular campuses and he just does such a good job. Even when someone's attacking him, he just doesn't go there. And he's been, on, he's been doing this for years, decades now. When I started listening to him, he had black hair and now he's got white hair. At least he's got hair. And uh, listen to what he says. This is one of his most recent books. After three decades, he says after three decades now of speaking on college campuses. And you need, you need to understand if you don't know this. He was a brilliant, brilliant young Indian in India in an unbelieving family and tried to take his life. He tried to commit suicide. He came to Christ in a hospital bed because he was one of those who just could not figure out what is life all about. I need something that puts it all together, a purpose. And he came to Christ through that crisis. He says this, young, honest minds seek answers and meaning. No amount of philosophizing about a world without God brings hope. After three decades of covering every continent and delivering scores of university lectures, I've seen that this sense of alienation and meaninglessness is the principal malady of young minds. Academic degree after academic degree has not removed the haunting specter of the pointlessness of existence in a random universe. Atheism is bankrupt for answers. It is. It is. As much as Richard Dawkins and others want to harp about, you can still have the good life and be an atheist. You can still have the good life. You can still treat other people right. And you can still... It's a lie. It, it's, it's, it's meaningless. There's no reason. The people that are being most consistent with the atheistic message are the people that are doing whatever they want and harming other people. It's consistent with what they're being The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said a universal madness. See, the early atheists like Nietzsche and Sartre and others, at least they were honest and consistent. Guess what? Most of them either went insane or tried to take their own lives because they truly believed and were playing out the logical implications. What we have today are new atheists that are, what they're doing, folks, is they're reaching over into Christianity and grabbing some of our stuff and pulling it in to say, You can still have purpose, but it's not consistent. You have to reach over into Christianity to be able to sustain atheism. Tell him I said so. (laughs) Nietzsche himself, the philosopher Nietzsche said, a universal madness would break out when the truth of what mankind has done in killing God. He was the one that, that, that captured and started the phrase, God is dead. And killing God dawned on us. Nietzsche himself spent the last 13... Here's what they don't tell you at the university in your Psych 101 class or Philosophy 101 class about these people. They don't tell you some of their sad endings. Nietzsche himself spent the last 13 years of his life in the darkness of insanity while his godly mother, yet a Christian mother, watched over him by his bedside. Without God's word, life... Not only is life meaningless, but without God's word, life is vanity. As Solomon decided in Ecclesiastes, there's an example of a, of a book where we see, all right, go ahead and do what the world says. Is it just more stuff? Is it money? Is it a big home? Is, is it intellect? That I've got a brilliant intellect. and I can, Solomon had all this. And then he says over and over, vanity, all is grasping for the wind. Vanity, all is grasping for the... Just the physical, just a naturalistic... If you put a lid on this world and snap it tight and say there's nothing outside beyond what you can see, touch, taste, feel, 
after a while, you're just like, this is all spitting into the wind or grasping for the wind. I, th- I think, surely, you've had the same experience and that it wouldn't just be me. I love the, the scriptures that tell us these things, but it does encourage me in a day when so often we're just told the opposite. When I run into people who have had it all and give this own personal testimony. There's a guy out at, we have a Christian retreat center called Potter's Ranch about 45 minutes from here. And there's a guy out there that's like a living Solomon, you know, with the same testimony. And uh, his name's Charles. He wouldn't mind me telling you this. I mean, he loves Jesus. Oh, my goodness. So I go out there to pray for days of prayer and fasting to be alone. He's very gregarious. So he knocks on my cabin door one day. I don't usually expect anybody to be there. He's like, hey, you want to go get a hamburger? I'm like, hey, no. That's why I'm here to not talk to people. But I had a check in my spirit. It's like the Holy Spirit said, say yes. Not what you usually do, but okay. He tells me his story. It's like, oh my goodness. So here this guy is. He's a gazillionaire. He's had multiple businesses. He had the goal that so many Americans have. have re- what is that? Retire early. Retire filthy rich and retire. Wouldn't it be nice to just do nothing? News alert. It's not. As much as you think that would be nice, those who've been able to do it are like, no, I'm going to lose my mind. So he said, I'm 45 years old. I'm in North Carolina at one of my many homes, sitting at my lake, out on the dock, and saying, what am I going to do? I've sold all the businesses and made all this money. Now I don't have to do anything, but I'm miserable. He said he's already wrecked several marriages. He's, he's alone. And he said he, he starts looking in the want ads just for something to do. And he sees an advertisement for selling insurance, which he's never done before. And he responds to it. The guy that flies out there to interview him happens to be a Christian. And he doesn't just talk to him about the job. He shares the gospel with him. And Charles puts his faith in Jesus Christ. And, oh my goodness, the guy has nothing but a motorhome now. He doesn't even have houses. And he just lives in a motorhome and goes where he's needed. And this is one of the most joyful, radiant, happy people you could be around. Retire early and have all this stuff is not the answer. The need for counseling was intensified when we made wrong choices in the Garden of Eden. So we've always needed God's counsel because he did not make us autonomous, self-sufficient, independent. But the need just got greater when sin entered the picture. Then truly, 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 we needed it even more. We were created in a natural and moral likeness to God. We. And so this doesn't happen to you when you put your trust in Christ. Oh, when you put your trust in Christ, there's this God likeness. Folks, that's what also should give us compassion and a sense of respect and dignity for every human being. It doesn't matter whether they know Jesus Christ or not. From birth, you are created in the image of God with a moral, natural likeness to God. God's word tells us that we're created in his image For his glory, there's your purpose, there's your purpose. For his glory, for his glory, for his glory. Now that doesn't mean everybody has to quit their jobs and be a missionary or pastor. But it begins to give meaning and significance to whatever it is you do. If you're an artist, if you're an engineer, if you're a homemaker, you do it to the glory of God. You do it with a a bigger picture. You, You do it connected to something greater than just you. And it changes life. Even the things that you enjoy, you know, whether it's food or music or reading or nature. It's not wrong to enjoy these things, but everything now has a quick connection with 
God, God, God that changes how you view life, how you enjoy life, and for his own pleasure. Adam and Eve already had what is craved today. You think about it, in the garden as God created them, Adam and Eve already had what is so often craved today. Health, perfect environment, material needs met, meaningful responsibility tending for the garden, companionship, and nakedness. Man. Now I find, I find that this is largely craved by men, not women. I just assumed we all want that. And I found, no, we don't all want that. You know, I've got five kids and all the... You know, you imagine five kids. It's never a great time to run naked. There's always somebody. And as they've left the home and we had one last child that's in public school, it's like my day is off as Friday. It's like, we can run naked through the house on Friday. She just looked at me like, I have never thought about that. Nor do I want to do that. Run by yourself, big guy. I'll cheer you on. Go. There he goes again. Go. It's like... It's like... Oh, bummer, all these years I thought we would run together. We don't run together. There's one, one species that longs for that. God clearly communicated the only limitations. Oh, here, this, this just popped into my head. The Spanish people that are listening right now, those, that was not in the notes. Hola, I don't know what the word for na- nakedness is, but... Because he's like, oh, don't go tell stories. Stay with the notes. <laughs> Perdóname. I think that's for, pardon me. God clearly communicated the only limitations on man's behavior and the penalty for disobedience. Very few limitations on man's behavior. But Satan tried to overthrow and undermine God's counsel. Right there from the beginning. There's this, there's this struggle and this, there's this tension and it exists today with our enemy constantly trying to undermine and overthrow God's counsel. You see the way he began to speak to Eve. And it's not just what he was saying to her. It was how the reflection he was putting on God, right? He's not good. He doesn't have your best interests. You do what he says, you lose. There's a better way. He created doubt in their minds about God's word. That was his first approach. Did, did God really say, right? Don't you find yourself even today sometimes because more and more, whoo, is it not, if you're reading your Bible, how much of it? All of it, that you're just like, does that really mean what it says right there? I mean, we live in, oh, surely not today. It's like, folks, it's going to be that way more and more. You're going to have to make a choice. Am I going to be informed by and submit to God's word, or am I going to cherry pick, and largely I am shaped by the culture, and sadly that's what I see, Christians are like the frog in the kettle, and just more and more and more and more, oh, well, nobody expects people not to have sex before marriage, that's just a, that's not just anything, that's just a biblical command, doesn't matter what the world is doing now, God still says the marriage bed is undefiled, that's a euphemism for sex between husband and wife is good. But fornicators and idolaters, God will judge. Hebrews 13. That's still there. We're either going to still submit to that and say, or God did not call us to just say, well, where's the culture now? And which parts of the Bible still are closely aligned to that enough that we're going to do it? Doubt God's word. Denying God's word. Plenty of that going on, too, regarding sexuality. 
trying to find ways to say Romans 1, what it's talking about in homosexuality there, that's not really the homosexuality of today. That was, and even now Christians diving in, folks. Christians claiming to be Christians are writing books in detail, digging into the Greek, trying to find a way to explain away Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 and other places. Folks, it's heartbreaking. I know it's going to make you just look odd for God. Now, don't hear me say, let's be angry. Let's be obnoxious. Let's be hateful as we say these things. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying let's quietly and lovingly and calmly continue to hold to all of God's word. Because, folks, here's a news alert. It is not loving to tell people otherwise. When's their life going to be the best? When they do what God's word says and they're following Christ. Not when you say, you know what, you don't have to do that anymore. And they're like, thank you, I agree. Is their life going to be good? No. He made us. He designed us. He knows. Denying God's word, denouncing God's character. It all happened in the beginning. And listen, these are lies that we still hear today from our evil one. God's not good. Look at what's going on in your life. I know there's all these verses He can't be good if this was, right? Denouncing God's character, denying God's word, doubting God's word. This is the struggle that we still have today because God's word tells us that our enemy, Satan, one of the things that characterizes him, he is the father of lies. Lies. He's good at it. Eve listened to ungodly counsel and was deceived to sin. Eve listened to ungodly counsel and was deceived to sin. Now, what is interesting, when you read the scriptures, it it appears that Adam was right there. Right there. If you read through it, it, it appears that Adam was right there. And he was not deceived, but willingly just chose. He did not protect her, shepherd her, lead her, or love her as he should have. She yielded to temptation in the same categories as those mentioned in the New Testament. In 1 John 2.16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. She saw it, and it was pleasing to the eyes. She heard that this might satisfy her, and this might make her like God. She was already like God. They were already created in the likeness of God. And see, that's the thing about sin and our our tempter and our enemy. There's always this proposal that this would actually produce for you something that often you already have more than you realize. And what if you go this route, you'll lose. You'll lose what you have. Adam ate the forbidden fruit knowingly. 1 Timothy chapter 2 actually tells us this directly. That Adam ate the forbidden fruit knowingly. In 1 Timothy 2.14 it says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. That's not a slam on the female gender. It's a real slam on Adam as the head and servant leader of his home, of his marriage. He didn't protect. Their sin was more than merely eating, eating forbidden fruit. It was more than merely eating forbidden fruit. It was denying the revealed word of God, believing the lie of Satan, and placing their own desires above God's commands. And that will be a constant struggle for all of us as human beings. You're constantly at this point of decision. There will be times regularly, folks, God never said everything, 
everything my word counsels you about, your feelings will automatically resonate with that and you'll want to do it. Wouldn't that be nice? It's not how it is. Very often, my feelings, my sense, my this just seems right to me is going a different direction than God's word. And so the way I like to say it very often, you have a choice to make. Even as believers, you have a choice to make to either be a commandment or truth-oriented Christian or a feeling-oriented Christian. If you live by your feelings, I hope you know this, your feelings aren't sanctified. God does not call you to live by... See, our world talks this way. Oh, you want to know when you're really right on track and you're really in tune with truth? Go with what you really feel. Oh, please don't. Please don't. And and often the way that's described in our world is follow your heart. Guess what your heart is? Wicked. Wicked. The Bible never says follow your heart. Never. It says things like guide your heart in the way. Tell it where to go. Guide your heart. Cultivate your heart. Many times ignore what your feelings are saying. So you could be a feeling-oriented Christian and end up in a very bad place. And you think, how did I get there? I just kept listening to my feelings and doing what I felt, what I felt, what I felt, not what God's Word says. And whenever God's Word contradicts what I feel, I go with my feelings. Not good. And I know this is hard, folks. But there are many, many days I have to literally trample across my feelings. Oh, I hear them. It's like, feelings, I hear you, but I'm not doing it. I'm not going with what you're saying. We're going this way. But the only way I can do that, folks, it keeps coming back to this, right? If I'm watching endless hours of television, even if it's not heinous, it's the travel channel, it's the history channel, it's football, it's... It's not heinous, it's not sinful. But folks, if I'm spending little or no time having my heart and mind shaped by the worldview of God's word, and as I talked about yesterday, the big themes of his glory and what's really going on in this world, this is temporary. I'm in exile. I'm a pilgrim. I'm a stranger. I will not be able to make good decisions. And I, and I, I just keep running into Christians. You say, how do you know, Brad? Because I spend time with people at close range, like in a small group in my living room. And I'll forget myself sometimes to just say, hey, tonight for icebreaker, let's just hear what where people have been reading in their Bible. What has stood out to you in your Bible lately? Because I'm just excited. That is a showstopper. Okay, awkward moment. Eyes go to the floor. I got the same floor I had last week. Nothing's changed. They don't want to make eye contact with me. Why? They're not reading their Bibles. Nobody's got nothing to say. Terrible. And then... They wonder why. I'm just so discouraged. I'm just so depressed. I'm just so this. I'm just so that. I would be too. Folks, or compound that with not reading this, lots of television, and then in the car every day, conservative talk radio, just on and on and on and on and on and on. I'd be depressed. Turn it off. Don't hear me advocating, be clueless about what's going on. But how much do you need to know? I, I, try this. Stop it all for 30 days. And when you come back, all you will have missed is what happened. It's worse. Okay, it's worse. <laughs> I didn't need to know all the details of how we got there. It's worse. Okay. You can just read 2 Timothy 3 in the last days. It, it just reads like the newspaper, folks. 
They'll be brutal, despisers of good, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, haters of God. I want to be generally informed enough to know what's going on to be able to engage and make a difference. But folks, I want to spend the bulk of my time in God's word being shaped by that, being helped by that. I've got to listen to good Christian worship music and praise music. I've got to be spending time with other Christians at close range in a small group or ABF or Sunday school, whatever you want to call it. I've got to do all these things to keep from just shutting down and curling up in a little fetal position and saying, Mama, Mama, Mama. Right? You've got to have hope and help and grace and strength. God's Word. God's word. It was all bonus. The disobedience that Adam and Eve thought would maximize their pleasure instead maximized their pain and ours. What they thought would maximize freedom and isn't that the lie of the world? Like you've got complete sexual freedom. You can do whatever you want. And that's been harped since the 60s. And has it led to freedom? No, it leads to captivity and heartache and disease and all kinds of problems. It's a lie. The world says you can be free. You think about it this way. The person who sits there at the piano and is, as, in, a, in a sense, is captive to these little scales that you've got to do. It's like, oh, I hate this. They're the ones that if they do that, then have the freedom to really play. You think about a a, a train. On the rails, there's great freedom to to travel great distances and go places. If that train begins to say, I feel so locked in, tied down, limited, let's off the rails, destruction. That's what this is like, folks. This leads to freedom. God knows how we were designed. We need His word. Pleasure without boundaries produces a life without purpose. G.K. Chesterton. If you you like to read and you've never read any of him, oh, grab some of his stuff. He was a British journalist. Witty. I like witty. Oh, it's very good, very insightful, and he's quite humorous. He says, meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain, but meaninglessness comes from being weary of pleasure. That's what we're seeing today. It's like there's been such freedom given to go do whatever you want, but it hasn't led to satisfaction. It's led to weariness, dissatisfaction. Adam magnified his restrictions. He only had one, not this tree, and minimized his blessings and freedom. Magnified his restrictions, and we're still that way, right? We get all torqued over the things that we can't do, can't do, can't do, not supposed to do. It's just our sin nature. I love, that's why I love how John Piper puts this. He brings the glory of God together and our satisfaction and sin with his definition. Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied in God. So see, when you're going certain places, it's not just that we know that you want that. We also can conclude something else. You're not as satisfied in God as you should be. Otherwise, this wouldn't be as attractive. That's why biblical counseling, folks, is not just... A campaign of say no. Just say no. Just here's a verse that tells you not to do that. Say no. Say no. Say no. Here's what I try to do in biblical counseling. Yes, help them shut down the path that's leading to sinful, destructive behavior. But if you don't equally try to cultivate in them, enjoying the relationship with the Lord, tasting, the psalmist said, taste and see that he's good. 
That's why I've got them reading their Bibles and praying and getting in a small group. I'm trying to cultivate and stir up the relationship with God. If it's just no, that will be very hard. And even if they do it for a little bit, they'll be back at it or something like it. If there isn't a greater satisfaction somewhere else. I think about the, the options that the world gives us reminds us of me of like cotton candy and Twinkies and all these things that there's a short shelf life on them. There's an initial hit and a rush and a pleasure, but it doesn't last, right? Compared to prime rib, gravy, real mashed potatoes, not instant, and asparagus that's been grilled lightly with some sea salt, olive oil, and then squeeze some lime on there. Oh. That's what we're doing for lunch today. Not. <laughs> but when you've had that, right? I mean, what's the worst time to go to the grocery store? It's like, I'm hungry. I can eat like that and, and walk right through the Twinkie aisle. Don't need it. Don't need it. But when you haven't had something better, right? I've pulled things right off the shelf and eaten it right there and just laid the little wrapper on the, on the little conveyor belt. <laughs> That's, go ahead and charge me for that. It's gone. But, right, it's like, I want it now. That's how people are going out into the world. Oh, if, you're, if you don't have some good stuff stuck to the ribs of your soul, you will just be grabbing after all this other. Sin's what we do when we're not satisfied in God. The same actions today are producing the need for biblical counseling. Nothing's changed. All the culture's changed. There's, not, there's cars instead of chariots. Our housing looks different. All that may look different, but folks, the human heart and soul and condition is the same. Romans 1.28 says they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Don't want there to be a God. Don't want to be accountable. Don't want to need Him. Don't want to be dependent. I want to find a way to do this without God. The human heart by nature is like, oh, surely not that, not that, not that. Psalm 10.4 says, The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. Now, I'll, I'll say this. He has to work hard to get God in none of his thoughts. Because, folks, you do not have to introduce the concept of God, of God to a human being. They know. They know. They know. Romans 1 tells us, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the wickedness and godlessness of men who, what do they do with the truth? Suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. A human being has to actually intentionally, consciously work at suppressing. Why do I have these thoughts that there must be a God? Why do I have these thoughts that there must be more than what I see? Why do I... Because you're created in His image and you don't even have to put your trust in Christ. Romans 1 says creation itself right you say how do they know there's a god god romans 1 says because i've made it evident to them my my power and my glory through creation then you go on to romans 2 and it says god's law is written where they may have taken them off the walls of the public school that's okay where is it written Right here. They know there's a right and a wrong and a sense of moral morality and justice and truth and error and it's nonsense when philosophers try to work so hard writing books that there really isn't evil. Well, shut up. We all know there's evil. We all know there's good. We all know there's right. We all know there's wrong. It's in your heart. You have to actually work to think otherwise. 
and Job. Yet they say to God, depart from us, for we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? Sin or rejecting God's counsel brings terrible consequences. You can see it in Genesis and you still see it today. We're reaping the fruits. Sin brought eternal consequences. Sin brought immediate. The eternal consequences of physical death, eternal death. Sin brought immediate consequences. See, here's what happened when Adam and Eve rejected God's counsel and said, you know what? We can do this on our own. We gained the knowledge of good and evil, but lost the power to affect change. We gained the knowledge of good and evil beyond what we had before, but lost the power to affect change. Guilt was introduced for the first time, right? There had not been that. Guilt. Broken fellowship with God. God had been fellowshipping with them, and now for the first time as he enters the garden, they run and they hide. Pain in childbirth. Distorted marital relationships. There it is right from the beginning. See, it did not just affect their relationship with God. It did. But for the first time, we've got this, right? God's, and God, notice, started talking to Adam first as the head, servant, leader. And Adam pushes immediately and says, she doesn't even have a name anymore. This woman. It's like Bill Clinton talking. This woman you gave me. Oh, do you hear all the ugliness that's tucked in that one sentence? This woman, she's nameless now, you gave me. It's your fault. We are where we are today because you gave her to me. Oh, my goodness. This, just two chapters before when, when she was introduced, he's like, whoa, this is now bone of my bone. And he was so happy. No. Marital distortion in the relationship, exhausting labor in order to make a living. Now, don't make a mistake here. I hear sometimes Christians make a misstep here. Oh, work is a part of the curse as a justification of not liking work. Not true. Work got harder because of the curse. But created in the image of God, listen, I hope you've tasted some of this. Is there not a satisfaction? I hope it's not just because I'm 53. Please tell me that there's still other people that to work hard it's good. You know, if you're in the, if you're outside and you, you deadhead all the roses, why is that satisfying? Because we're created in God's image. I love deadheading roses. I love mowing and edging. I love working hard on a project. And yeah, work is hard, but there's also this sense of satisfaction, which is why very often when people retire so early and there's nothing they have to do, they don't do well. You were created to be about something. But it did get harder. And then physical death And ultimately, spiritual death. Sin created... In other words, sin wrecked every level of relationship. It created problems with us and God. Problems with ourselves. We don't even know ourselves like we think we do because of sin. And problems with other people. We got it on every level. Sin wreaks havoc on all relationships. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says, Your iniquities have separated you from God. And your sins have hidden your... His face from you. Jeremiah 17, 9. But our own struggles with, with understanding ourselves. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And with others. James 4, 1 to 3 tells us where do wars and fights come? And he's not talking about World War I, World War II. He's talking about what's going on in your home. He's talking about what's going on in that, in that workplace between people. Those kind of wars. and Where do wars and fights come from among you? Is it not your desires? I have an agenda. I know what I want. I'm promoting something. 
that war in your members. So what's the summary? Well, the need for biblical counseling is rooted in our sinful choice to think and act independently in violation of God's revealed will. The need for biblical counseling is rooted in our sinful choice to try to think and act independently in violation. Please don't hear me saying God doesn't want you to think. To be a Christian does not mean you turn off your brain. But to be a Christian does mean you submit to the authority of God and you say, God, shape my thoughts. Let my thoughts be shaped by your word. More and more, shape me, change me. Help me to think thoughts after you. Help me to think like you think. Because that's when you begin to find greatest joy, greatest peace. Great. So here's what biblical counseling is often about. You're trying to help people reorient what they're thinking. Because folks... Hope you understand, stuff happens. So someone may come in that's lost their job, found out they have cancer, wife left them, rebellious child, I don't know what it may be. They are thinking something about that and they have a worldview, whether they've written it down or not. And so, so much of biblical counseling is not stop this, start that, but how are you interpreting this? How are you processing this? What are you wanting? What is your agenda? What is your worldview? And you're gonna have to help them reorient their thing. Most people don't come in saying, oh, I understand, my purpose is the glory of God. Uh, no. And you're going to, and often, very often, they don't know what they're thinking. When I say, what? I don't know. They know what they're feeling. I'm angry. I'm depressed. I'm fearful. But behind emotions, folks, God's not against emotions. He made us emotional beings. But what the scriptures teach is that behind emotions, emotions are fed by thinking. What are you thinking? What have you been saying to yourself? What have you been rehearsing over and over? What are you believing? Because that feeds and fuels feelings. And very often, based on those feelings, I take action to either do or not do something. If you just set up roadblocks here and say, stop doing that, and you don't... Don't hear me saying, oh, you better get back to the emotions and say, stop feeling that way. That's not helpful. You got to get back here. What are you thinking? What are you believing? What are you wanting? What are you saying to yourself? And that's where God's word is so helpful. Like Adam and Eve, sinners today still run, hide, try to cover themselves and blame shift. You see it on every level in relationships. Still try to run, hide, cover themselves, and, and blame shift. Very, I, I haven't had anybody that comes in. I was about to say very few. None. We've got a bad marriage. And it's mostly my fault. But would you help us? She was willing to come because there's a little bit I'm sure she's doing. But it's, it's on me. Would you help us? Never. Right? Never, never, never. I didn't either. I was like, okay, we'll go. We'll go. And I hope you listen to what he says. Because I've tried to tell you, girl. And now maybe he can say it. And I'm sure there's a few little things that need to be tweaked in me. And I'll, I'll look for those. And she's thinking the exact opposite. Is that not so true? She's just thinking, if you just would. And, and you just see it. I'll say, for instance, I have this little worksheet. I'm like, write down ten things you've done that you think has promoted well-being in your marriage, write down the 10 things that you think are your fault, things that you've contributed to this problem. They will struggle. I just saw one recently, I kid you not. 
the, where, where it's supposed to be ten things you've done that has contributed to the problem, this person still found a way to word it in a way that's what she's done, and I should have just recognized that. That's how I failed, to not recognize what she's doing. That's not what I said to do, you wretch. I want to hear ten things. Can't even think of them, right? Why? Because we're so prideful and so unaware of us. Us, often it takes somebody else to say. Because, man, we just assume it can't be me. It's not me. You can see this same pattern illustrated again and again in the Bible. You see this same pattern illustrated again and again in the Bible. In Genesis 4, you've got Cain killing his brother. So angry. Such to the point that, and most people don't murder, but oh, Almost every human being has reached a point where in your heart, you've killed them. It's, it's that, you are that enraged about this. In 1 Samuel 13, Saul's sinful choices. In Romans 1 that I already touched on. This still is being played out and illustrated again and again in the Bible. You can see the cumulative result in 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 13. When you read 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 13, it's like, wow, that describes today. I do believe we're in the last days, truly, in the last days. Because when you read this, it's like, oh, wow. There's rampant iniquity, misdirected love. Oh, people are lovers. Yeah, lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Rampant hypocrisy, rampant apostasy, rampant persecution. And we're seeing that ramped up more and more and more. So what can we do? Well, we could throw our hands up and quit. Many have. And say, this is just so hard today. There's no way. But some, some have quit but still just play church. Just going through the motions. Some have quit by living pessimistic lives. Just woe is me. It's never been this bad before. Let me encourage you, even if you're not a huge reader, it's time to read. Please read your Bible. But read some history. Read some history I love reading biographies. You know, you know what's good about biographies? You realize, oh my goodness, someone I thought highly of suffered. I didn't know that part of it. You're always like, oh yeah, they did blah, blah, blah. Like John Calvin. Yeah, he wrote all those books. He did that and he had hemorrhoids constantly, bleeding hemorrhoids. That's helpful to know. You're just like, oh my goodness, he was sitting there like that writing the institutions. Yep. In a day without preparation age. It's like, I don't know what, what they had, but can you imagine? You just, and you, and you read worse things than hemorrhoids. When you read, it's like, oh my goodness, they had eight children. But the first one died at two. And the second one died at eight. And another one died at five. And you realize, that, like I'm, right now I'm reading the biography of J.C. Ryle. And, and you read his works on the holiness of God or the expo, expositional thoughts on the gospels. But he doesn't talk about his own life. But then when you read it, it's like, he's, I'm, I'm not done yet, but he's on his third wife. And his second wife, from the honeymoon on, was smitten with some affliction. And for ten years was in great pain. And he had to care for the three little boys and do what he did as a pastor. And it's helpful. Because if you're thinking, oh, what I got going on is so hard. Then you realize, wow, by God's grace, he did what he did with those circumstances. Read. Read, and it'll help you not feel so sorry for yourself and think, I have it harder than anybody else. You probably don't. Some blame it all on Satan. You know, there's that, that theology. Everything is a demon behind every bush. When you read the scriptures, folks, like the book of Romans, for instance, great book. 
all these references to Jesus Christ and one mention of Satan. God doesn't call us to put together this amazing, articulate, specific, there's a demon over Kenton County and a demon of Campbell County. We've got to name it by name and pray over it in the blood of Jesus. Stop it. Don't go there. No truth. No truth. We don't have to try to figure out a demonology and a Satanology and certain prayers and... Mm -mm. Be people of truth. It's not all about Satan. Some resort to a cure-all blessing. There's this theology that it's so hard, i got to get in the zone. What is that zone? What is that formula? What is that secret? There's a secret. Man, this is hard. There must be something I don't know or I don't have. Now, if you're not reading God's Word, that could be the answer. If you don't understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit, that could be the answer. If you're living in isolation from other believers and you never spend time with believers at close range getting grace, that could be the answer. I could go on with a few things. But beyond that, sometimes all that's in place. And guess what? Life's hard. We need as believers to understand a theology of suffering well. God's Word doesn't have a, a magic zone in how to get in the suffer-free zone, hurt-free, pain-free Life. You can find that on the Christian television station and the best-selling books that all have titles like Seven Keys, Six Secrets, Four Steps. And they sell. Because we're all thinking there's got to be a dot, Some say it's too late to make lasting change, just evangelize. And many have turned to God's enemies to find out how to bring about changed lives. I love Jeremiah 7 where it says, yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in the counsels and the imagination of their evil heart and went backwards, not forward. Does that not speak to our culture today? It's like they think they're so wise and they've discovered something better. And all these years when we said it was wrong, it's not wrong. And you can just watch it going backwards not forward. While we're the ones that are called, you know, Cro-Magnon people for thinking so antiquated. Oh, God's word speaks to exactly where we are today. Paul had the answer for the problems and, and need for real change. God gave us his inspired and inerrant word. I love it in Timothy where you find out what his word is good for. It's good for doctrine and for reproof and, and for change and for training in righteousness. Everything we need here. To know what is true and, and, and how do I change and how do I sustain this long term to see it become a habit in my life. See, change is God's and the church's business. We should be about transformation. Too many churches are about information. And it starts with information, but that information to, should lead to transformation. God's word adequately equips us to help people reaping the pain of sin. So what's the goal of biblical counseling? Well, true biblical counseling always has a clearly defined, communicated goal of helping the counselee. I mentioned this last night. Not just solve your problem. Not just get in a, in a more pleasant place. Become God's kind of person. The circumstances of their life may be what brought them in. But it's a springboard to disciple and encourage them and help them. Becoming God's kind of person is an ongoing process of putting off wrong thinking and having your mind renewed. It's solving the problems that motivated people to see us. Many times will become secondary. Not saying we don't care. But here's an opportunity to grow in following Christ and knowing Him. We want to make a disciple, not just fix a problem. And so my homework, that's my homework sheet, is geared that way. I'm getting them to read the Bible, get in a small group, memorize a verse, 
pray, and yes, then I'm specifically going after some of the things that brought them in. So who's qualified to do this? Where the world would say, oh, just certain special, special, special people. According to the scriptures, a spiritual person. You who have the spirit. Filled with the spirit. Controlled by the spirit. Concerned about sin's impact on other people. You need to be a gentle person. Not just someone who loves truth and can shout it at people. Take sin seriously. Be humble. All, all these things that I'm ticking off here can be taken right out of Galatians 6, 1 and 2 that I showed you last night. A responsible person, a caring person, a confident person. Not arrogant, but confident in God's word. And a focused person. 